good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, my questions are questions 34 and 35. I will spend the bulk of my time discussing question 34 and using 35 as a jump off point for the, for the next three weeks. Question 35 asks, what is the effectual calling? And the answer to that is the effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. If you are truly a believer, that is only because an infinite sovereign God called you to himself. This calling is not given to every single person. It is a calling that the Father has chosen to whom he will and will not offer salvation to. This calling is entirely on God. There is nobody ever who has chosen God apart from him calling them first. I'm guessing that many of you in this room tonight heartily agree with this statement and would say amen to it. I would as well. Sadly, though, many do not hold to this right and beautiful doctrine. I find tonight's lesson a little ironic that it's being taught by me. As 10 years ago, I would have wholly rejected the notion as foolishness. I pushed back on it out of a sense that God was being unjust in his ways of offering salvation to some while ignoring others. Pastor Paul had preached a sermon about, about this teaching one Sunday, and I just knew that Paul was wrong. I called or texted Nick later that day to verify that the nonsense that I had per heard Paul preach was in fact that. Correctly, Nick, to his credit, as an elder, walked me through this, trying to set me straight. Unfortunately for him, he kind of had a hard-headed student, and it took me some time uh, to, to meditate and to learn and to think and to pray on what God had taught me. It took three years or so to kind of come to terms with that, and that was a difficult, turbulent time in my spiritual growth. But at the end, I came out with a much better view of who God was and a much more accurate view on who I was. This lesson tonight comes... Because one elder, because one elder decided that he needed to tell the truth. Before we discuss the effectual calling, though, we must do a little bit of groundwork. God's effectual call is not a request for you to choose him. John 15 takes place in the upper room on the night before Jesus was betrayed. Here he makes it plain to the disciples and us that, th that those who are in Christ are chosen by God. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. If there is, if there, I'm sorry, is there an outward or general call that goes out to every person? Yes, there is. The very existence of God as creator is enough for every person to follow, to believe. Creation testifies that there's a God. The general call goes out to everyone through the preaching of God's word. In Matthew 13, we see the parable of the soils teaching, the general, teaching this general call and pointing us towards God's effectual call of his people. 
In this parable, we see a freely spread uh, a seed that is freely spread everywhere, in, in every place. The seed does not take hold, though it does not grow or thrive in every place that it lands. Paths, rocky soil, and thorns all exist, all keeping that seed from taking hold, from growing strong and producing a crop. The seed represents God's word. Many who hear God's word reject it out of hand. Some take it in with joy. They accept it, but because there is no real root of the word in them, they reject, they reject it when trials and tribulation come into their lives. Still others see the Christian life as something cultural to do in order to make friends and connections, treating it as an accessory, an accessory to be put on or taken off like a watch. They see it as a path towards their own ends of money or an easy life or some other such misguided purpose. However, apart from Christ, they are not God's people. We see the general calling working out in our own lives when we tell our families and friends and others about God, his work in our lives, and the call for them to believe in his son. Not all of our family, friend groups, or acquaintances have changed lives because of what they hear from us. The general calling is declaring God's truth and greatness, but it is not drawing un the unsaved to Christ for redemption. Why? This is because of one very simple reason. It is impossible for anyone to choose God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks, it, talks about this and it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in, the wor in work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. When someone is spiritually dead, they have no power to choose spiritual life. Not only are they spiritually dead, but they are actively followers of the devil, albeit most unwittingly. If you are looking at your friends and your family and you have told them the gospel 15, 20, 30 times and you feel like you're not succeeding is because it's not on you to succeed. You did your job. The church has not been given the duty or even the power necessary to force someone to choose God. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 never gives us the job or even the ability to convert, but rather we are commanded to declare Christ to the ends of the earth and disciple believers through the teaching of the things of God. That is our job, to go and to tell. We need to make sure that we put God's job on his plate and we take the job that he's given us and we run with it. Our own conversion from being children of wrath into children of God was not done by us. Rather, we were pulled from the fire by a God who chose us before the foundation of the world because of his purposes and plan for us. We are his children and heirs with Christ only because he adopted us. Left to our own devices, we would never choose to be part of his family, even if we wanted or could demand to be admitted into that family. However, in some places, the seed does grow 
if you look at the parable, there is that fourth soil. Even while the general calling does not lead to repentance and belief in one, God's word comes to a heart of another that hears it, understands it, and is forever changed by it. The general calling for one is an effectual calling for another. The Bible describes the person whom the seed grows and produces as good soil. But let's be clear about this good soil. This soil is not good by anything of its own being or doing. The soil described here did nothing to make itself good for, for planting. The soil was viable only because of God's work to remove rocks and weeds and to provide this soil with what it, with what it has to have for the seed to grow and to yield. The soil is acted upon completely by God. The growth and crop from the soil comes only from the one acting towards the soil. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 talks about this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you're saved, it's because God decreed it. That grace, or that, grace that you've been given is a saving grace. It is not a hand up. It is not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of grace or any other grace that isn't totally reliant on God to make it happen for you. Faith is the instrument that God gives us for us to take hold of Christ. Our faith in Christ and his perfect sinless life, his death and his resurrection is us trusting that God is who he says that he is and does what he says that he's going to do. We can't earn or maintain or secure our salvation. Salvation is not something we can attain because we live a good enough life. Understanding this keeps us from boasting or bragging that we are somehow smart enough or faithful enough or devout enough to attain our own salvation, even in a small part. This points us to only Christ as our boasting, not because we're worthy of saving, but because he is merciful. So what happens to the heart of someone who God gives his effectual calling to? Quite simply, their life is eternally altered. To the one who does not receive the effectual calling, they only have reprobation, hell waiting. There is nothing that we as individuals, relatives, friends have to make that happen. It is purely on God. That does not mean that we are to then have a woe is me attitude. Okay? The Lord tells us what we're to do. We're to go out and declare the things of God to the ends of the earth. We have friends and, um, in Haiti who are doing that now. We ourselves in this room go and we do that Monday through Sunday in our daily lives. But we're doing our part and trusting that God in his infinite wisdom knows what he's doing and that he is saving everyone who he deems worthy to be saved. The effectual call comes only from God through the working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper for the believer, but to the lost that God is saving, he is the one we are regenerated by. The Father elects and sends the Son. 
The Son atones for the sins of the, of the people the Father has elected, and the Spirit regenerates each person the Father elected and the Son atoned for. The effectual calling comes from the Holy Spirit to a person. In Romans, in Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the, or that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those whom he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see that working of all three um, persons of the Trinity in there. Okay. In verses 29, we see the workings of the Father and the Son. And in verse 30, we see the working of the Spirit. All bringing unsaved people to salvation under Christ. Romans is clear here. The calling comes only from God. The effectual call has a divine origin. God, being omniscient and timeless, is the one who calls. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, Paul talks about this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul concisely unpacks the effectual calling to the saints in Ephesus. God chose every believer before creation, election. So even before time started, God knew exactly who he would save. If you are in this room and you are saved, it is because before the foundation of the world, God deemed you to be saved. This choosing happened only because he decided to do it, and it was a decision from love. This choosing leads us to being adopted to him, regeneration, as children through his son's blood, atonement, and that this all should lead believers to praise him because of his grace to us. I remember when I was much younger in my faith and I thought that election would be this idea that people would then brag about that, oh, I'm saved because God saved me. I must be worthwhile. And that, per, that poor wretch that didn't get saved, well, he just must not be nearly as amazing as I am. When in actuality, none of us are amazing. The only thing that we deserve is hell. No, no one in here deserves anything other than that. That's what we've earned. But a God who is merciful and loving didn't even spare his own son for you if you're saved. You're here saved because God would not spare his own son for you. We have zero impact on this choice. We were not, are not better than those brands that God left in the fire. The human heart is incapable and does not want to draw near to God. Many in the American church will bristle at this. They'll make shouts of my favorite word in the English language, unfair. If any of you guys know me very well, you know that that is the word I think is the stupidest word in the English language. And it is one that people throw around uh, quite freely, especially here in 
uh, Shangri-La, also known as America, that we live in. They would shout unfair, to which I would say, I do not think you know the meaning of that word that you're using. You, him, her, and me all deserve hell. We all deserve death because we've sinned against a, we've sinned against a holy God. But God is merciful, choosing not to spare his own son, saving us because he values his mercy over some people's misguided misguided sense of what fairness is really. Because if we were looking at fair, we would know that we broke God's law. He said, live a certain way. Every single person cannot, does not, will not, apart from Christ. What would be fair would be that God sends us to what we've earned. You, I have a job. They pay me once a month. I like the money, but they, they give me what I have earned. And left to your own devices, what you've earned is hell. The Holy Spirit does four very significant things in the regeneration of believers. Number one, the Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin. You wouldn't even know that you were sinning or that it was even a big deal without the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to see it. Only through the work of the Holy Spirit can we, can we even see our sin and its rebellion towards God. In Isaiah, we see a good picture of this. Isaiah in chapter 6 gets a vision of the throne room of God. There he sees angelic beings giving worship to God. When Isaiah's eyes are opened to God's holiness, Isaiah can only respond that he is lacking in a very deep and profound fundamental way. Isaiah 6, 1 through 6 reads, In the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then came one of the seraphim, flew, and having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. The right response to God calling an unbeliever into belief is recognition that our sin is real. Our life up to this point, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, has been a life of constant warfare against the sovereign God of the universe. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are given the blessing of seeing and understanding that our sin against God is wrong. Isaiah didn't recognize this sin against God because he saw him or that he was in his throne room or saw some really amazing angels. But because the Holy Spirit made Isaiah see it, 
when our eyes are truly opened to our sin, our only response is that in that recognition is that we deserve only one thing, death. Isaiah, Isaiah says in the ESV, I am lost. The King James Version translates that more poetically as I am undone. Isaiah also was able to recognize why he could rightly say that he was lost. He states, I'm a man of unclean lips. He knew his sin. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes so that he got an accurate picture of who he was and just how far away from a holy God he really was. With the Holy Spirit opening Isaiah's eyes, he could see his sin for the first time as it really was an affront to the God who created him. This is the same state that every believer finds themselves when God calls them to himself. Notice though, Isaiah was not left in that terrifying place of recognition of righteous judgment. We saw that at the end of that passage, the seraphim brings him that coal, tells him that his sins are atoned for after he puts it to his lips. And we see that he is no longer on the outs with God, that he is actually saved, his sins atoned for, not partially covered, but completely covered by the blood of Christ. And Isaiah was roughly 700 years before Jesus even, even was on earth. The only way anyone can see the truth of Christ is through the Holy Spirit opening their eyes. We know that we are guilty of our sin. We're scared and we're ashamed. We know what we deserve to receive. Though instead of that eternal punishment, we know that we have rightly earned, Romans 6.23, the Holy Spirit directs us to the work of Christ. We see Christ as the only solution that exists for us. We see him rightly as God's son who took the punishment that we now see that we so richly deserve. We can understand John the Baptist's words now in a better light in John 1 saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, because we can now actually see our sin. Until this point, it was like we were in a room with the lights completely turned off, and we were all just moving around, not seeing what was, what was really there. Or if we never owned a mirror, and we constantly had like a piece of lettuce in our teeth, but so much more and so much worse our sin is to God. And that when we actually open our eyes to see what we really are and what our sin really has done in terms of being outside of what a holy God deserves from his creation, it's staggering to think about. In Colossians 1 verses 3 three through six, we see that Paul opens his letter to the church of Colossae with a warm, with a warm greeting, as well as a profound statement. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in, in heaven of this, you have heard before in the, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And that's really the culmination of point two. The Holy Spirit gives us those eyes 
to see what our sin has done. It opens you up to recognize it, to see it, to understand it for what it really is, and to give you the opportunity to see Christ for what he is, the only way that you have for salvation. The end of verse six is a profound statement. Since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, without the understanding of the grace that saves, we only have the general calling. We need the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit to bring understanding to our darkened hearts. And that brings us to point three. The Holy Spirit renews our hearts and causes us to love Christ and to forsake sin. Around 500 years before Christ, God tells Israel that it or tells Israel what is needed for them to actually be his people. All they would need to do was to get a heart transplant. They needed hearts that were deceitfully wicked to be turned into hearts that were after the things of God. Ezekiel 11, 17 through 20. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all of its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone and... and I'm sorry. I will remove from them their heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I shall be their God. Ezekiel on an immediate level is describing God returning Israel to the land that he had cast them out of. But the deep message of that passage is God calling spiritual Israel, the whole of people who recognized Christ as Lord, the elect. We are able to choose Christ only because of this new spirit that gets placed in us. Our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. We now have the ability to be obedient to God rather than only being able to do what is evil. The heart of flesh through the Holy Spirit's work will choose God. We use the word choose, but in reality, we have no ability to refuse. We can't turn down God's offer because, in fact, he's not offering. He's commanding. We are just now able to obey, and we are willing to obey. But in reality, there is not going to be true. That's why. Paul, you are a hero. Okay. <laughs> you are a lifesaver. Okay. All right. Thinking back to the parable of the soils I mentioned earlier, we see that for a time, some soils showed growth. But in reality, there is not going to be true growth for that season. There is no real heart change. We saw in that parable of the soil, it, the seeds are thrown on the path. Nothing. They're, they're not growing. There's nothing happening there. Okay. But there are other soils that look like life is happening and that growth is happening. Over time, though, we see that those that what started out looking like it was going to take root and hold falls away. But ultimately, there are seeds that grow. Number four, 
He persuades us, enables us, and enables us to embrace Christ who is freely given to us. The freely given here does not describe our ability to refuse God's great gracious offer. It is the understanding that we have no ability to pay God back for anything of his. The only way we could receive such a prize was because the infinite God of the universe gave it to us with no cost to us. And we'll talk about that a little bit as the weeks come. And so we see in Matthew 9, 9, the calling of Matthew. As Jesus, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So when, that, when the, God's spirit works on the heart, you are drawn to them. It is not an option. No person willingly is able to say, ah, thanks, but no thanks. I kind of like what I'm doing here. God is as infinite God, as omnipotent God chooses whom to save. We might look at it as, oh, I chose God that on that night when I was saved. But in reality, God chose to make that the day that we were elect or that we were saved. There was no choice on our own individual part. John 1 verses 12 to 13 wraps up this discussion on effectual, effectual calling nicely stating, but to all those who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our bloodlines, our, ability, our abilities, or our wills are not what makes us children of God but rather the father sending his son to live a, a flawless, sinless life led by the spirit, dying the death of a criminal buried three days and risen, calling us to himself through the same spirit is why we are children of God. Wrapping up question 34. The only reason we're saved is because God does it for us. None of us could do it. Without his calling, without his command to believe, we would all be in darkness. Now that, we, now that we see how God uses his effectual call to draw us to himself, this leads us to our next question. In question 35, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? So, once you are called, what are the benefits that you get? They, are, they that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Okay? So we get some really miraculous things because we have been saved. I'm only going to lightly touch question 35 as the following three questions will, di will dive deep into each of these three major benefits. Think of this as a teaser trailer for three great upcoming movies. Believers receive three benefits from God's effectual call. Justification, adoption, and sanctification. Justification is the process by which one is made just within the eyes of the law. You are 100% justified the moment of your salvation. That justification will cover all of your past, present, 
and future sins. If you are truly saved, you will not look at that as a license to do whatever you want. This justification is applied to you because Christ lived a sinless life, was punished for the sins that you committed, are committing, and will commit. He died and rose again, and you have placed your faith in that because of God's effectual call to you. Pastor Paul may look down on me for only giving you the English translation rather than in the Latin, but Martin Luther stated, we are simultaneously saint and sinner. Saint because of Christ's imputed righteousness given to us and also sinner because we still sin in this life. This justification would be in stark contrast to that of justification within the false religion of Catholicism. The biblical justification that the beloved enjoys is called synthetic justification. That is justification where we are only righteous because Christ's righteousness is added to us. Christ provides 100% of the justification to cover the 100% of the sin that we bring. Christ's righteousness is imputed or put on us as if it were ours all along. By contrast, the Church of Rome's view of justification is unbiblical. The Romanist view of justification is analytical justification. According to Rome's teaching, Christ does not impute righteousness to anyone. Rather, he infuses believers with his righteousness. This allows them the ability to do good works that in turn will help them attain salvation. Christ gets them started, but it is their responsibility to finish the work. It's faith plus works. It's grace plus merit. If this system were real, each person saved by Christ who could earn the rest of their way to heaven would deserve at least some credit. I think we can all see that. If I have to do a certain amount of good works or do certain things in order for my salvation to be secured, I get some of that credit. But scripture never teaches that. Okay? If anything, if anything, not even if anything, it blatantly teaches the opposite. You will do good works. Okay? Faith without works is dead. Okay? You will do good works. But those good works flow from your salvation not in any way for you to attain it. The second benefit that we receive in this life, and we will also enjoy it in the next, is adoption. Adoption is the act of legally taking in someone's child and raising them as your own child with all the rights of being part of that family We've seen this happen here at FFC with Nick and Missy adopting Rosie and Paul and Anna adopting Sophie. Adoption is not family light. A person adopted into a family is 100% legally a part of that new family. Adoption, although a legal matter, is also familial in nature. Bonds beyond legality exist. If you don't believe me, go up and tell Missy that Rosie's not really her daughter. Then come back and tell me how that went for you. When we are adopted into God's family, we are pulled from being children of wrath directly into being children of God. We are brothers and sisters as well as fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8. 
we get to call the God of the universe Father and have it also be true. And then finally, sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which God conforms and grows us toward the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. Sanctification starts the moment that you're saved. Unlike justification and adoption, however, sanctification is not 100% finished the moment that you're saved. For the believer, sanctification is a lifelong renovation from the old man to the new man. I mentioned in my last sermon the book Maturity by Sinclair Ferguson, and I'll do so again, as it really does a nice job of showing you what, what sanctification will look like through the Christian life. Beyond these three benefits of the effectual call, believers get many other benefits that flow from them. They get the fellowship of the saints through the church as an earthly benefit. Prayer is also another earthly benefit that the believer has. The fact that we took prayer requests and we carry each other's burdens are all benefits that flow out from the fact that we are in in the beloved. In conclusion, we have been saved by the work of God only and can look to God as both the author and finisher of our salvation. I'll take questions. When you say justification is inside of the law, you mean uh, right standing with God, like, like basically God's declared the righteous because of Christ. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned in the, the personal kind of history of your coming to terms with this doctrine that you ended up, after years of study, with a more accurate picture of who God is. So can you kind of share with us a little bit about how your view of God has come into greater focus based on the doctrine of the effectual? Yeah. Um, really, the, the idea of sovereignty is kind of um, at the center of that. I understood that God was powerful and great, but I also was American, and I love freedom. And I want to do what I want. And I want to feel like that I have control um, in any and everything, as Nick would probably tell you <laughs> if, he, if he was going to tell you things about me. Um, that, that is starkly in contrast to the God of the universe. We are not in control. Um, I felt like that it would take away some of God's um, righteousness if he didn't give us the ability to choose um, when in reality it was taking away from his sovereignty of being creator and getting to choose with how he does with his creation. It took, took a long time to work through that and to, to really get to see that God was even much bigger than I imagined he could be and much more powerful and that he actually could do what he could do because he controlled everything. He has the right to do with his creation as he wills.
just the reverence for the law when someone is converted. Um, like when, when, in your process of understanding that, did you make a connection like early on, or was it later that believers are going to be their adoration for God is not only of their how they fall short, but how God is is other, right? God is holy; He's set apart, right? And then. Where did your understanding develop when it came to God's law and the believer as far as the effectual form? I would say the more that I spent in the word and really was trying to prove that Paul was wrong, really dove me into like find things that I could push back against his crazy, wacky ideas. Um, But... To Paul's credit, he was always very gracious and we would talk and he would share things and um, God worked on my heart and my pride in that time and really like sanded away a lot of edges that were there on the statue. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't just thought that he was wrong and moved on, but went to God's word to really see what he said about himself. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Did I not answer the question? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the law is something that a lot of believers get wrong, right? And I think when it comes to the effectual calling, we don't often talk about it, but it kind of, it terrifies me when I hear someone have a twisted view of the law and then to say, yes, but I've been effectually called, you know. It's one thing to get the effectual calling wrong. It's another thing to Not antinomianism is limited to dispensationalists. There's, there's, there's reformed antinomianism too. And um, I think those would be the ones who would probably lean more to the hyper Calvinistic, you know, pristine grace kind of guys. They just, you know, I think the reverence I'm trying to get at do you see there's a connection between effectual calling and a saint to adore God's law? If I'm answering your question right, I think that it I I don't know because I think it's I think that as people grow and as they become more mature and as they spend more time in the word, I think that any and a lot of the the misguided or the lack of understanding people have about God in general starts to get stripped away. Um, I, I, I mean, I think the fact that I look back and I could see that I was wrong in this area does open me up to recognize that I could be wrong in other areas and that God works with us through sanctification, showing us better who he is. So that the person that I am now, I was not, I'm not going to probably be in the future because the Lord will be walking with me, Lord willing, and doesn't take me home before then. He will walk with me and sanctify me more, drawing me closer to the image of his son 
and giving me a much better reverence for his law, for his mercy, for his word, for his church, for his people. some point in their life, God is going to bring them to proper understandings of these doctrines, which um, makes me terrified for a lot of people who proclaim the name of the Lord and have a uh, irreverence for, or almost like a mocking of his law. You know, that's why I say it's just kind of creepy. Yeah, I would say that those years of, of learning more about who God is were, were the start of me being much more reverent towards the things of God in general and to maybe pass on the funny joke or the quip. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think if we all had the ability to go back into our, our minds five, from five years ago or 10 years ago or even go into our minds from... 20 years from now, if we're here, Lord willing, I think that would be a, it would be wild to see just how much that the Lord works on his people the longer that they walk with him. Anybody else? All right. Well, the next three weeks are going to be on justification, adoption, and sanctification. Um, I tried not to jump to much into each of those because I wanted to save um, them their, the bulk of what they're going to teach us like Paul did for me. Close us in prayer? Yeah, sure. All right, cool. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord. Thank you for um, your, your sovereignty, Lord. Um, the fact that you really are the creator of the universe. You say... Um, and do as you please because you created everything, Lord. Apart from you, we would not be in this building, Lord. We wouldn't even be your children. We would be your active enemies, Father, save for your son's atonement for our sins. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Um, the, the, the way that we are regenerated comes from your spirit, Lord. You bring us into your family, Father, when Without that, we would be lost forever, Father. Thank you for everything that you provide us, Lord. God, I pray that you keep us all safe as we go through this week, Lord. Um, continue to be our um, focal point in our daily lives, Father. Give us the, um, the words to say as we declare who you are to friends and family alike, Father. We love you so much and thank you for everything. Amen.